Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I don't know if we want to bring the lights up a little bit more, Roger, so I can see. I don't know if they need to see. You probably want to see what you're reading, don't you, from your, from your Bibles. Uh, let's all turn in our Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And as we're turning there, I, I want to give some statistics on the state of Christianity in America today. Um, two huge research companies, the Pew Forum and Gallup, have both come out with some interesting findings talking about the state of Christianity in America. Back in 2007, a few years back, the Pew Forum did a huge research project, 35,000 respondents in this project in 2007. Basically what they found out was that 16% of Americans claim no religious affiliation at all in 2007, 16%. They did the same exact study in 2014, just a few years later. It had grown to 23%. In just that short amount of time, the number of people not claiming any religious affiliation in America has really skyrocketed. In 1967, before I was born... Gallup, some of you are like, hey, I remember those days. Gallup found that about 2% of Americans, 2% of Americans claim no religious preference. That was back in 1967. In 2014, it had jumped to 16%. In 2007, this is the one that's amazing to me. Not, I, think, I think it's skewed. Eight out of 10 Americans claim to be affiliated with Christianity. Eight out of ten. That means 80% of Americans say they are a Christian. Now, that has lowered in the past few years. Now, seven out of ten Americans claim to be Christian. Now, if seven out of ten Americans claim to be Christian, would our world not be different? I don't think that's accurate. What we see in American culture today is a lot of confusion about what it means to be a Christian. Anybody and everybody can say, I am a Christian. Justin Bieber claims to be a Christian. He was baptized supposedly last year at a church in New York City. Hillary Clinton claims to be a Christian. President Obama claims to be a Christian. Donald Trump was supposedly led to the Lord a few weeks ago by word faith heretic Paula White, who was Benny Hinn's mistress for a few seasons. A lot of you younger people may know Nick Jonas of the Jonas Brothers. You know Nick Jonas of the Jonas Brothers, kind of popular in the Disney world for a long time. He wore a purity ring until he took it off last year. Here's what he says about his relationship with God, Nick Jonas. Quote, I've had an incredibly intense journey with faith and religion and my growth. My belief in God is still very strong and important to me as a person, and I think that's all that should matter. The other things around it are not as important to me as my relationship with God. But here's the problem with Nick Jonas you know anything about him he's on a tv show right now tvma 
called The Kingdom. It's a mixed martial arts show where he plays a gay character that does gay nude love scenes and uses four-letter words on television. But his relationship to Christ is important to him. We live in a confusing world where anybody and everybody can say, hey, I'm a Christian. So the question we've got to ask then is, what does it mean to be a Christian? I mean, that seemed like a very easy question to answer, but with all the confusion going on in our world, it's a very fundamental question. How, how do I have a relationship with God? What does it mean to be saved? How do I know I'm going to heaven? How does God save sinners? And so I thought about moving on into John chapter 7, because we're pretty much done with John chapter 6. But I thought, you know what, we need to spend one more week in John chapter 6 and look at some theological themes related to how God saves sinners. Because there's some truths here that I don't want us just to to gloss over. We've read the story, right? We know the story of John chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. It's an amazing miracle. And the only reason that they enjoy Jesus, they're coming to Jesus, is because of the free meal that he gives them. Then on the next day, they seek after him, and he begins to preach and teach in the synagogue in Capernaum, and he begins to tell them about the bread of life. He's the bread of life that's come down from heaven, and he talks about how we looked at last week, you've got to fully take him in, you've got to surrender to him totally. Jesus demands nothing less than your total faith and trust in him as the bread of life. And then they all walked away, except for the the 11. Judas kind of hung around, but he was a fake. And Peter says, well, who are we going to go to? You have the words of eternal life. But what I want us to do is, is I want to just nail down some, some basic theology this morning about how God saves sinners because I think there's a lot of confusion. What I'm about to say, our world does not understand. It's confusing to our world. Our world doesn't accept it. They reject it. They don't understand these basic truths that you and I hold to be self-evident or to what Jesus teaches us. So I just want to look at three biblical truths of how God saves sinners, and then I want us to to look at how those practically work out in two two specific areas in our lives. So here's truth number one, and this is more of a thematic issue in John chapter 6, but here's truth number one, spiritual deadness. You are born spiritually dead and unable to come to Christ due to the guilt of sin. Spiritual deadness. Deadness. Now let's look at Jesus' words very carefully because he's going to tell us this reality. How does God save sinners? Well, before he saves us, we've got to be lost. We've got to understand who we are as those who are spiritually dead. All right, John 6, 44. Let's look at this very carefully again. John 6, 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me Unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now go down and look at verse 65. It's almost the same exact wording, just a little bit different. Verse 65, he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. No one can come. No one has the ability to come. No one can come to me. So the question is, okay, why can't sinners come to faith in Christ? What's preventing them? Maybe you thought, well, we're just kind of born a blank slate. We're born a blank slate. 
There, there's nothing that Adam and Eve did that really affects us. We're really a product of our environment. We can choose to sin. We can not choose to sin. It just depends upon our upbringing. We're really not as bad as we really are. What does the Bible say about spiritual deadness? What does the rest of the Bible teach? Does the Bible teach, in fact, that we are spiritually guilty, lost, dead, and in bondage to sin? Does the Bible teach that no one can come to Jesus because of sin? Well, let's just look at a few passages of Scripture. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and we and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's very clear. You were dead in your sins, in your transgressions, in your trespasses. That's who you used to be. You were dead, spiritually dead. Romans chapter 8, 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh, a, a lost person, a sinner, you cannot please God. It doesn't say that you don't or that you won't. It says you can't. You cannot submit to God's law. You cannot please Him. What pleases God the most? Faith and trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. You cannot. Your, your mind is hostile to God. You're an enemy of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. A lost person, a natural person, a person who's dead in sin, is not able to understand these spiritual truths. And so here's the fundamental problem that's endemic to all people everywhere. Every single one of us was born spiritually dead, spiritually enslaved, separated from God, guilty in bondage, and blinded by Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. Truth number one, and it's a fundamental truth. We are lost, guilty, dead, enslaved, hopeless without Jesus. And, and the question we've got to ask is, do we truly understand that? Do we truly understand how lost and guilty and dead spiritually we are without Christ? Or are we just kind of bad? We do a few bad things. We make a few mistakes. Or do we truly believe at the core of our being without Christ we are dead spiritually? So truth number one that Jesus teaches is spiritual deadness. No one can come. You can't. You can't come to Christ. But here's the second thing that Jesus teaches. Truth number two, if truth number one is spiritual deadness, here's truth number two. Sovereign regeneration. The Holy Spirit 
must overcome your deadness by granting you new life and drawing you to Jesus. Now, let's look at these two same scriptures again because we see this teaching in both of these scriptures. Look at verse 44 again. No one can come to me, that's spiritual deadness, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day, unless the Father draws. Look at verse 65, same exact wording. He said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me, spiritual deadness, unless, the wording's changed just a little bit here, it is granted him by the Father. So something has to happen to you if you're going to come to Christ. There's an unless there. You have to be drawn. You have to be granted the ability to come. Now, what does it mean to be drawn? What does it mean when God draws you? It means that you can't come on your own. You have to be drawn. You have to be brought. God has to overcome your deadness, your enslavement. God has to do something in your heart to bring you to Christ. He has to effectually draw you. He's got to bring you to Jesus. The Father's got to do that. You can't draw yourself. The Father must draw you. In verse 65... Jesus changes the wording around a little bit. Instead of drawing, he says, unless it is granted. Granted. In the original language, it really means a gift. God must sovereignly and graciously gift you, grace you, with the ability to come. He's got to enable you, some translations say. He's got to grant you the ability to come. You are spiritually dead. No one can come unless, what's the unless? You're not going to come unless the Father does something to you. He's got to draw you. He's got to grant you. Now look at what Jesus says in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. This is just another way of Jesus saying God has to draw you, the Father has to enable you, the Holy Spirit has to give you life. You can't give yourself life. Why can't you give yourself life? You're dead. You're spiritually dead. You can't give yourself life. Only the Holy Spirit can give you life. And what does Jesus say? The flesh is of no help at all. The flesh is of no help at all. That word help means benefit or assistance. You, you in your sinful state can't help yourself. You can't bring yourself to salvation. You can't produce this spiritual rebirth. You can't save yourself. Only the Holy Spirit has got to give you life. And so Jesus uses all these different terms. The Father has to draw you. The Father has to grant it to you. The Spirit has to give you life. Go back to chapter 5 for just a moment. Look at, just flip back one, one chapter. Look at chapter 5, verse 21. There's kind of a Trinitarian understanding here. The Father draws, the Spirit gives life. But look at what Jesus the Son does there in 521. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Son gives life. The Father has to draw. The Holy Spirit has to give life. There's got to be this newness. Now, the Bible uses a lot of different terms to describe this process of being given life. There's a lot of metaphors that are used throughout the Bible to speak of what God does when he gives you this life. Let's just look at a few of these. 
Some of these metaphors, some of these images. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, chapter 36, verses 26 through 27, here's the image from the Old Testament. And this is God speaking. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The imagery here is you've got a dead, stony, guilty heart, and it needs to be taken out of you. Because if you die with that dead heart, you're hopeless, you're helpless. God has to come and take that heart out, put a new heart in. It's this whole idea of giving you life. It's just an Old Testament metaphor of taking out a stony heart and giving you a new heart. Acts 16, 14. Paul goes down to the river in Philippi. He begins preaching. There's a woman there named Lydia. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Just another way of saying it. The Lord opened her heart. The Spirit gave her life. The Father drew her. God took out her heart of stone and gave her a heart of flesh. Ephesians chapter 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. God made us alive. Who made who alive? Did you make yourself alive? No, God made you alive. This whole idea of being resurrected to new life. How does Titus talk about it? Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Just another way of saying you've been washed, you've been regenerated, you've been given a new heart, the Spirit's given you life, the Father has drawn you, the Father has granted you the ability to believe, you've been made alive, the Lord's opened your heart. 1 Peter 1.3, let's just look at one other place. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Being born again. So no matter what term you want to use, you can use them all synonymously. You've been born again. You've been given life. You've been made alive. The Father has drawn you. Your old heart's been taken out. You've been, oh, your, your eyes have been opened. Your heart's been opened. No matter what you call it, you've been regenerated. God sovereignly overcomes that deadness and gives you new life. Now, think about your physical birth. What moved you to be born? Did you produce your birth? Well, number one, you didn't produce your birth because you weren't there for sperm and egg to come together and create your birth. But when you're in your mother's womb, did you knock on the door and say, hey, it's time for this little puppy to be, to be scooted out? Did, did you have any control over your birth? No, what, what controlled your birth? There's something called a nine-month gestation period. We call it pregnancy. Under normal circumstances, what happens after nine months? Your biology, for you women, says it's time to be born. Now, did you choose that timing? No. Everything about your physical birth is a sovereign act of nature. It's a miracle. God causes you to be born. And what happens when you're born? What do you do? doctor slaps you on the behind and what happens they don't do that anymore but what's the first thing they do they make sure that you can breathe and what do you do you cry 
So here's the question. Do you cry in order to be born, or do you cry as a result of being born? You cry as a result of being born. Same thing in your spiritual life. When God causes you to be born again, when God opens your eyes, when God draws you, when God grants you life, when God takes out your heart of stone and gives you a heart of of flesh, what's the first thing you do when he does that? You come to Christ. You cry out to Christ. You give your life to Christ, which leads to truth number three. So truth number one, spiritual deadness. We are all spiritually dead and hopeless without God's number two, sovereign regeneration. He's got to come and do that, that change in our heart. He's got to make us born again. He's got to give us spiritual life. But here's number three, saving faith. Saving faith. When the Holy Spirit gives you new life, you will come to Jesus in repentance and faith. When you're drawn, when you're given life, when you're born again, when your eyes are opened, no matter what metaphor you want to use, when that happens to you, what are you going to do? You're going to freely come to faith in Christ. Look at John 6, 37. John 6, 37. We're still in John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now notice what Jesus says there. All that the Father gives me might come to me at some point, may come to me, could come to me. What does he say? They will come to me. So here's the powerful truth. Nothing can stop you from coming to faith in Christ once the Spirit's given you life. No matter how sinful you've been, no, how, no matter how spiritually dead you've been, no matter how guilty you've been, no matter how much sin you've stacked up on your record, no matter how much shame, rebellion, guilt, depravity, and you may think, Sean, you don't know the things I've done. It does not matter what you have done. Nothing on this earth can stop a sovereign God from overcoming all of those barriers in one instant and giving you life and liberating your heart, wiping the slate clean, forgiving you of your sins, and granting you life when you were spiritually dead. It's a miracle that all of us should be saying, yippee, praise the Lord, amen, hallelujah, I've been made alive. And what happens when you've been made alive? You come to faith in Christ. What does Paul say in Romans 10, 9? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Question for you this morning, have you confessed Jesus as Lord? Have you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Are you coming to faith in Christ? Are you believing in Christ? Are you submitting yourself to Christ? Are you surrendering your life to Christ? Are you giving your life to Christ? Are you having faith in Christ? Are you repenting of your sins and coming in faith in Christ? That is the most important question that any of us can answer on this Lord's day. Have I personally trusted in Jesus alone for my salvation? Has he overcome my deadness? Has he given me a new heart? And have I come to him in repentance and faith? Now, that's, that's Christianity 101. Those are basic truths. Spiritual deadness. We're all spiritually dead without Jesus. Sovereign regeneration. God's got to make us born again. God's got to put a new heart in us. Number three, saving faith. Once he does that, you'll come in repentance and faith to Christ. But what I want us to do is I want us to go a little bit deeper and, and, and look at two particular areas of practical implications of how this works itself out. If this is what you believe, 
about how God saves sinners, then it will affect how you do certain things in your life. Number one, evangelism. Number two, worship. Let's talk about evangelism first. How does having this understanding of how God saves sinners impact the way we share our faith with others? So here's number one, spiritual deadness. Do you see lost people as spiritually dead and hopeless, helpless, and hellbound, or do you see them as really not that bad? When you're talking to a lost friend or family member, do you look at them as they're kind of sick? They may need a little information. They need a little bit of education. They may need some good advice. Or do you see them as spiritually dead and separated from God and helpless without Jesus? Do you, do you look at your lost friends and family members through the lens of the way the Bible calls them as lost? And does that move you to compassion for them, that they are helpless? Do you believe they have a heart of stone that needs to be replaced? Do you believe that they're spiritually enslaved and that they're guilty? Do you believe that their eyes need to be opened because they've been blinded by Satan? Do you believe that they're a prisoner of war to their sin and their shame? Do you have a fundamental belief in the depravity of lost sinners? And does that move you to tears? You think one of the reasons we don't share our faith is because we really don't believe people are lost. We somehow in the back of our mind think at the end of the day, God's going to get them off the hook and there really is no hell after all. And we justify not sharing our faith because we've lost just a fundamental belief in the depravity of humans that they're lost and they're hopeless and they're helpless without the gospel. Do we truly believe that people are spiritually dead and need Jesus? But here's number two in the way we do evangelism. It's sovereign regeneration. Do you trust in the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit to bring life and draw people to Christ, or do you rely on man-centered techniques or methods to try to get a decision? There's a lot of things that we do in our flesh to try to get people to make a decision. If we just lowered the lights, if we just had the right praise team playing the right song, and Sean gives a really emotional appeal and we tug on people's heartstrings, and we get people all mixed up in a frenzy and an emotional state of um, whatever, we can manipulate people into making a decision for Jesus. Or we can twist their arm, or we can give them a canned sales pitch and try to drive home the sale and close the deal. We can do all these types of things to try to get people to make a decision and never trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to do His work. Now, I'm not against creative methods in trying to get uh, to reach people. I mean, we do things in our church every September. We go to Sugar Beet Days, and for two days, we're out there giving out free water, and we're talking to people about Jesus, and we're, we're sharing the gospel. Um, we go on mission trips to Russia. You just heard about how they went into anti-cafes and, and did conversations with, with English clubs and played games. In India, we're going to be going into villages and doing different things. So there's, there's a lot of different things that we have to do. And so I'm not against techniques. I'm not against creativity. I'm not against different types of methods as long as we don't trust in the method to bring salvation and leave the Holy Spirit out of it. That's the problem. A lot of times we don't trust in the Holy Spirit. What do we see in the book of Acts? Did you see big events and concerts and all this kind of stuff? Not against those things. What did they do in Acts? 
They just showed up in a town and started preaching. It was the sufficiency of the Scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've given this extreme example before, and it's an extreme example. A few years ago, there's a church in Florida that finished out their vacation Bible school, and they had all the kids in the auditorium, and they gave every kid a ticket. This is your ticket. And they had two buckets at the front of the sanctuary. One big bucket said heaven, and it was nice and pretty. The other bucket said hell, and it had flames coming out of it. And the pastor said something like this, All right, you've got your ticket. Now it's your chance to pick which way you want to go to spend your life. If you want to go to heaven, go over and put your ticket in the, in the, in the heaven bucket. If you want to go to hell, put your ticket in the hell bucket. Now, who's going to walk over to the hell bucket when you have a, you know, so, you know, little Johnny Satanist walks over there. Okay, I'm, but no, every, all the kids are going to walk over and put their ticket in the heaven bucket. And then the pastor's going to say, look, thousands of kids got saved because they put their ticket in the heaven bucket. Now, I'm not denying the salvation of thousands of kids, but the, the reason they're saved is not because they put their ticket in a bucket. The reason they were saved is because the Holy Spirit overcame their deadness and brought them conviction of sin, and they truly repented and believed the gospel, not because of some man-made gimmick. Number three, saving faith. Do you urge sinners to come to Christ in repentance and faith by submitting to His Lordship? Here's where we get it wrong in our culture today. We have made repentance and lordship optional when we present the gospel. We tell people, just ask Jesus into your heart. He'll be your best friend. He'll give you your best life now. He'll make all your dreams come true. And just just give your life to Jesus. Half true. Jesus demands repentance and faith in his lordship. Do you lower the bar on lordship? Do you lower the bar on repentance? What were some of the first words out of Jesus' mouth? Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The first words out of his mouth, repent, believe the gospel. You know what some of the last words out of Jesus' mouth were? Luke 24, 46-47. He said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus came preaching repentance. Jesus left telling his disciples, preach repentance. What do you see in the book of Acts? Well, they preach repentance. Acts 3.19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 20.21. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What is repentance? Uh, I read a good book recently called Evangelism. I got it a couple years ago at the Together for the Gospel conference by a guy named Max Stiles. And he tells this interesting story. Uh, uh, it really is a parable of, of repentance. Max Stiles, a few years back, went to um, Philadelphia to see James McPherson, which was a Pulitzer Prize winning historian, and he was giving a lecture on Navy battles. Um, and so this auditorium was packed to hear this uh, revered person, this historian, uh, talk about Navy battles. And so the place was, everybody was on, their, on the edge of their seat, ready to hear this guy. And he, he begins to, to lecture, and he's very engaging. And all of a sudden, the fire alarm starts blaring. And people kind of stop for a moment, and he kind of stops for a moment. And some people start, you know, talking amongst themselves 
But here's the issue, what Max Stiles says. There was one man in the entire auditorium that quietly got up and left. Everybody else stayed there. And eventually the fire alarm went off and he continued his lecture. But what Max Stiles says, that's a, that's a picture of repentance. There was only one true believer in that room that day. Everybody else justified it. Everybody else rationalized it. There's not really a fire alarm. It's not real. Uh, they, they looked at each other. We've been through this before. There was only one man that believed the warning, actually got up and left. He repented. He repented. Everybody else was just kind of wondering what was going on. And Max Stiles says that's really what repentance is. Repentance is you hear the warning sign. No matter what everybody else does, you hear the warning sign, you don't rationalize, you realize you're helpless, you realize there's hell, you realize you need Christ, and you get up and you walk away from the danger, you walk away from the sin, and you make a turn, and you turn toward faith in Christ. Do you urge people to repent? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. He gave a warning. Do not suppose that the gospel is magnified or God glorified by going to lost people and telling them that they may be saved at this moment by simply, quote, accepting Christ as their Savior while they are wedded to their idols and their hearts are still in love with sin. If I do so, I tell them a lie, pervert the gospel, and insult Christ. What's Spurgeon saying? Don't you dare go tell a sinner, hey, you can just accept Christ and live however you want. There's no such thing as repentance. There's no such thing as turning. You can be wed to your idols. You, you can be in love with your sin. It doesn't really matter. Just accept Jesus. No, that's not repentance. Repentance is you leave your life of sin. You follow after Christ wholeheartedly, and you surrender yourself totally to him as, as Lord and Savior. How does having this understanding of the way God saves sinners impact the way you worship? Think about your personal worship for a moment, your, your alone time with God. Are you thankful in your times of prayer that God rescued you out of your spiritual deadness and gave you life? Are you amazed that God pulled you out of the sewer of sin and adopted you into his family? Or, or have you become prideful? Have you become entitled? This entitlement and God, you owe me. After all this stuff I've been doing for you, you owe me, God. And when things go bad in your life or things don't go the way you want, you get irritated with God because you think he owes you. What does God owe you? Nothing but his justice. Nothing but hell. And the very fact that he rescued you from that, pulled you out of that, and gave you new life, are you just amazed? Are you humble? Are you thankful? Are you tempted to, to boast about what you've accomplished? Do you start to stack up your resume to God and say, God, look at all the things I've done for you. Now you owe me. Is that an understanding of spiritual deadness and sovereign regeneration and saving faith? How about when we come together for corporate worship on the Lord's Day, what we're doing right here as a church family? When we come together in this place, do we have a sense of the transcendent majesty of a holy God who must show up in this place if anything of significance is going to happen do you truly believe there are people sitting next to you right now that are spiritually dead and need the holy spirit to invade their heart are you praying for those around you that god would speak to them that god would move are you praying for me that when i preach god would show up in his power are you praying for true gospel transformation do we want to hear the gospel preached, or does it become old hat? 
Are we ready to repent when confronted with our sins? How quick are we to repent? Is the overall attitude in our worship service one of dependence, humility, and helplessness? Or do we walk through those doors thinking, the praise team better be good today because nothing's going to happen unless they create an atmosphere. Pastor Sean better be on his game today because I don't want to listen to him talk for 40 minutes. The people around me better talk to Do you walk into this place with this entitlement attitude that things better be my way? Or do you walk in this place thinking, I am so thankful that God saved me as a sinner and I'm among his people and God's going to do something great today. Would you come, Holy Spirit, and do something great? Do you have that attitude? That repentant? Are you discouraged when you don't see results? When you don't see people come to the front, when you don't see people saved, are you discouraged when you don't see things happening the way that you want them to happen? Or do you trust that just the proclamation of the gospel is faithfulness, regardless if anybody responds? You see, we live in a time of spiritual confusion. Spiritual confusion. And if you don't understand spiritual deadness, if you don't understand sovereign regeneration, if you don't understand saving faith, it's going to affect how you do life. It will affect how you pray. It will affect how you do evangelism and ministry. It will affect how you worship. It will affect how you go through trials and struggles in your life. So how does God save sinners? Well, in His great mercy, He looks down upon those that are spiritually dead, spiritually helpless, enslaved in their sins, and God says, I'm not going to leave them in their depravity. I'm not going to leave them in that sewer of deadness. I'm going to reach down in my grace. I'm going to invade their hearts. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit down. I'm going to draw them to myself. I'm going to grant them saving faith. I'm going to make them alive. And when they do that, they will come to my Son, Jesus Christ, and they will truly repent, and they will truly believe and they will come and so I think before we leave John chapter 6 we need to hear the words of Jesus just one more time John 6 37 through 40 all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That what? Saved a wretch like me. Do you believe you're a wretch that needs saving? And are you amazed by God's grace in doing it? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. This may just be an opportune time, if you're a Christian here this morning, if you're a believer, to just praise the Lord Jesus for saving you, a wretch. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not a believer, if you've never come to that point where you've trusted Christ for salvation, what better time than today than to understand that you're spiritually dead, you need new life, would you 
repent and believe in Jesus? Would you come to Jesus? Would you cry out on your heart, Jesus, save me. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, overcome this guilt and sin. Forgive me. And the Bible says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you call upon his name? Would you spend some time in silence this morning calling upon the name of the Lord in his amazing grace? Father, we're so thankful that you have chosen to save us as sinners. When we look at Adam and Eve and what they did in the garden, as they rebelled against you, Father, you could have stopped right there. You could have cast them to hell and said, we're done with this entire human race thing. But in your grace, you sent Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior, to come and to die on the cross so that we might have eternal life. And Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you showed us amazing grace. Lord, we really are wretches. We, we don't want, that's hard to admit, Father, that we're wretches. We don't like to talk like that. We think we're pretty good. We think we're all that. But we know that without you, we were spiritually dead, we were enslaved, we were in bondage, we were guilty. And we desperately needed the invasion of the Holy Spirit to overcome all that and give us life, to draw us, to cause us to be born again. Thank you for saving faith, Lord Jesus, that we can come to you and you'll never cast us out. That when we come to you, you will raise us up on the last day, that you will keep us to the very end. May we be those that are thankful this day that, God, you love to save sinners. And if we're all honest with ourselves, we know ourselves better than anybody else. We're the worst of sinners. We know what lurks deep in our hearts. We know what thoughts we've had this morning. Lord, we know the depth of our sin. And were it not for Jesus Christ and his grace, we would all be hopeless. So thank you, Jesus, for forgiveness. Thank you for grace. Thank you for saving us. Lord, if there's anybody in this place this morning, that is dead, that needs a life. Would you draw them? Would you give them life? Would they come to faith in Christ today? Would they repent and believe for the very first time to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life through Jesus Christ? Lord, would you take the words that have been spoken and as we leave this place, would we be not just hearers of the word but doers also? in joyful thankfulness and in consistent obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.